Welcome to an all-new edition of the Bearded Darkcast with Dave Friedman. I am Mike Pacheco, and I am so glad I took the Warriors in six. It was probably one of the smartest prognostications that I've ever had. So really excited about that. Of course, the Warriors did end up winning in uh, in six games over the Celtics. And a pretty good series, Dave. It was a good series. I'm just glad it's the longest day of the year. It's that much more time for me to look online and figure out what Warrior Championship gear I want to purchase and uh, acquire and wear proudly. I thought you were going to call me on uh, on the, um, the big lie that I told at the beginning. <laughs> you know... Those that listen to this podcast, and it's it's a small, intimate, but loyal group, I think they know you're the Boston guy, yeah. and I'm the Bay Area That's guy, right. and I don't know that you're fooling anybody. Yeah, I don't think I fooled anybody. But boy, <laughs> it was a, I mean, it was a fun series. Uh, disappointing, obviously, from uh, from a Celtics perspective. But uh, I, I think, I don't think you had to be a Celtics or a Warriors fan to enjoy that series. Uh, I mean, you saw terrific performances uh, particularly Steph Curry, which maybe cements his legacy with the 42 points. What was it game th- uh, game four? Um, uh, I think you know from a Boston perspective, I think uh, the the play of Jason Tatum is going to um, is going to draw a lot of attention. But I would say this in his defense: I mean, he doesn't get there without they don't get there without Jason Tatum. And you know, superstars don't always have big games in big moments. Um, and he's a young guy, and I think you know they'll be there again. They have a good young core. They need you know obviously there's some flaws that that, that became evident. Uh, you know I think Tatum was exposed a little bit by the Warriors too. I thought it was a terrific coaching job by Steve Kerr and the Warriors. And um, you know it was I think you have to respect just how good an organization the Warriors are. The, the, you know the fourth title in what six years and. Um, just the, the my hats off to the Golden State Warriors. They really played terrific. I mean, you covered a lot of ground there, and I want to kind of pick at each piece of it. But it's four titles in eight years, six finals in eight years, and a final every year that Clay Thompson has been healthy. But let's start with where you started. You thought it was a good finals. You thought it was an enjoyable finals. As a Warrior fan, I, I certainly felt that way. As a Celtics fan, I am certain that you enjoyed watching the games. They were fun games, etc. For the average fan, whether they be a basketball fan or just kind of a, a sports fan in general, I, I don't know. All of the games were decided by 10 points or more. I think there was only one game in the last three, four minutes that the outcome was really in doubt. I don't know if you've watched any of the Stanley Cup Finals this year. I have no dog in that fight. I am interested in watching a team try to win for a third straight year versus the team that I think has been the best team for at least the period of time that I've been paying attention. Game one was really tight, and and I watched quite a bit of game one. I did not tune in on time to see the beginning of game two or game three of the Stanley Cup Finals. By the time I looked up to see what the score was it was two nothing or three nothing or four one and I didn't even bother and I'm not so sure that people that watched the NBA finals in the same way wouldn't have done the same thing they went oh there's six minutes to go it's a 14 point game guess it wasn't a great game yeah perhaps but I mean I, I still think you're seeing um, a, a domination that uh, you know I, I think if you like dominating performances too though I mean in, in the sense of Steph Curry, individual performances, um, you know, taking over a game, um, seeing what he could do. And then, you know, conversely, I think there was um, 
you know, <clears throat> I don't know what I'm trying to say, Dave. What am I trying to say? Well, I, I think what you're saying is if you love the NBA and you like basketball and you like strategy and you like adjustments, it was compelling. That's exactly but, what I was trying to say. But the things that we think of as what made a great game it was a drive at the end the touchdown was scored or the defense stood up the games weren't decided at the very end True, i don't yeah. know that that has to define what is or is not a good game but but i mean even in game six that the warriors dominated the celtics were ahead 12-2 or 14-2 yeah, yeah. the warriors went on that run which i think they said it was a 21 nothing run something like that it, it was the biggest run in an nba finals game in 50 years or something like that so th- there was a lot within the game but I- i'm curious i'm going to ask you this question first i'm going to do it like a lawyer because I have my own answer to it. What did you think the difference was in the series? Why mm. did the Warriors win? I think it was um, some of the secondary pieces for the Warriors. I mean, obviously you had moments with you know Clay and obviously with uh, with uh, with Thompson. Um, you know, Draymond kind of came and gone, but Draymond had. I think Draymond was big when they had to finish it out. Um, but you know, I think uh, I think Wiggins was a huge piece to why they won this game. I think the Celtics had a difficult answering um, difficulty answering him. Um, so I think that was uh, those are kind of a couple two of the kind of the points I had. And I th- I just think that um, both teams look tired to me. And I'm not say- I'm not using that as an excuse. You know, I, I think that the all the game sevens that the that the Celtics had to. Um, had to play. I think that kind of caught up with them a little bit at the end. But I think, you know, I thought Jordan Poole was a was a big part of this, and I thought Andrew Wiggins was a big part of why um, why they won. And you know, Looney showed up in big spots too. You and I talked about leading into the series what we could expect in terms of. You said the Celtics had been brilliant in the fourth period. The Warriors have been tremendous in the in third. third period, hysterical uh, historically. And I said. I thought the only way the Celtics could win, the only way they could score enough points to win, was to force Warrior turnovers and score in yeah. transition. Yep. And then game one happened, where in half-court offense, the Celtics were unbelievable. That they, they shot the living daylights out of the basketball in game one. And that led to what I thought was kind of an over adjustment by the Warriors in game two they choked off smart and Horford and white and Pritchard and they didn't allow as many threes the Warriors won game two but then the Celtics and I thought their staff did a really nice job adjusting so game one the Celtics role players hit a zillion threes Horford goes six for eight and white goes five for eight and smart goes four for seven and Pritchard goes two for three that group of players was 17 to 26 from three in game one game two the Warriors adjust and they they close out a lot harder to those guys and they make it much more difficult on them that the Warriors play a, a terrific second half they, they win the game you go back to Boston it's game three and now the Celtics counterpunch the Celtics say if you're going to close out that aggressively that opens up 
driving lanes. And I thought the Celtics game plan in game three was probably the best game plan of the the entire uh, series for either team. They're like, in game one, we hit a million shots and we can do that again. You're now choking off those shots. Forget that. We'll take a dribble and pull up. We'll drive into the lane. We'll score at the rim. And when Kevon Looney's not in the game, you've got no rim defender. I I thought the most dominant game of the series was the Celtics' Game 3 win. So you go to Game 4, and this was the only point in the series that I was nervous at all. And it was because it just seemed like after Game 3... The Celtics were too athletic. They were too young. They were too physical. They were too athletic. The the Warriors couldn't match that. And in game four, the series just shifted 100%. The Warriors went back to what I had said on the podcast before the the, uh, series began. They said, these guys that are 33, 34, 35% three-point shooters, Go ahead and try to beat us. Yeah. For, for four quarters, we don't believe that these guys are going to beat us. So all of a sudden, those driving lanes were no longer there because the Warriors were allowing Smart, Horford, White, and Pritchard to shoot threes. Now, not as open in game one. that They yeah. weren't mocking them. They weren't six <laughs> feet away from right, them. Right. But they were closing out short to those guys. They were not allowing those drives. Andrew Wiggins did a tremendous job on Jason Tatum. We saw Draymond Green often guarding the the second best player and other than those two guys brown and tatum that the celtics have role players yeah. al horford was tremendous in the series he was 15 of 24 on three pointers but those other three guys smart white and pritchard after game one of the series they were 16 of 55 from three That's 29%. I thought Jason Tatum played a really good series. He played a little bit the way that I think LeBron James plays. He plays a high IQ game. If you double team him, if you're really physical with them, if he doesn't have an open shot, he passes. Yeah. Well, in game one, Peyton Pritchard was two for three from three, and in the rest of the series, he was one for 11. I mean, White was five of eight in game one, five of 17 the rest of the series. The Celtics were one guy short. They were the, the J.J. Redick or the John Paxson or the Steve Kerr or the Byron Scott Sure, they, they didn't have someone that could break the defense. And that meant the Warriors could put so much of their attention on Tatum, who, yeah, maybe he was tiring and maybe he was injured or maybe Andrew Wiggins is just a better defender than he has faced thus far. I mean, the idea that Marcus Smart was going to be able to stop Steph Curry, no one has stopped Steph Curry for 15 years. Why would Marcus Smart or anyone else be able to do that at this stage? I mean, we sit and watch Winthrop scouting reports when, when Winthrop is playing whoever, and sometimes they're playing Power 5 teams with, with guys that are going to be in the NBA, and sometimes they're playing Big South teams. Y- you see the way and the options you can guard different guys. There's not a coach on earth that can stop Steph Curry. If you guard him 30 feet from the goal, he's going to drive into a floater, or he's going to drive and kick to somebody that's open because the defense had to step up. If you play off of him, obviously he's going to shoot the ball over you. If you double team him, he's going to get the ball to Draymond Green, who's going to play four on three. There's no guarding players like 
Michael Jordan and LeBron James and Jerry West and Magic Johnson and Kobe Bryant, that that's what Steph Curry is. Count him as a top five player, a top 10 player, a top 20 player. He, he is one of the special players in the history of the league. He's changed the game completely because you, you now have to guard someone so much further out. And t- to me, that's what was so rewarding about this championship as a Warrior fan. You know, the first year they won the championship, the Cavs had a couple of key injuries. Kyrie Irving was injured in game one of that series. And then the next two championships were with Durant. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was a super team and there's nothing wrong with that. But Durant was the best player on those teams. And now with that same core of three guys to win again and to do it with Curry clearly being your best player. But but Wiggins... Wiggins, A, was a stroke of genius by Bob Myers to acquire him. I mean, they, they, they absolutely stole him from Minnesota after finagling the Durant leaving in free agency into getting D'Angelo Russell. I mean, just br- brilliant. And, and it takes great ownership because they were willing to pay yeah. way over the luxury tax to do that. But, but Wiggins essentially replaces... Um, Harrison Barnes from that first championship oh, yeah. game and or championship See, team. And then you look at Gary Payton, who basically is playing the old Andre Iguodala role of a, a lockdown defender, a really physical, rangy guy. I just think the Warriors, the way they are built, is so unbelievably intelligent and what people aren't really talking about right now because none of them played a role in winning the championship is the Warriors have had three lottery picks the last two years and they've drafted three teenagers in Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Mooney and uh, James Wiseman and and the idea is that one or two or all three of those guys are are going to be the future of the franchise and you know I I don't know how long Steph Curry is going to be great for I thought Klay Thompson was good but far far from the Klay Thompson that we've known for pre-injury this year and and Draymond Green is not going to be the player he has been forever and I, I think this year the numbers would suggest that he wasn't as good as he used to be but you add Wiggins and you add Jordan Poole, you've got those three young guys that I mentioned and and Payton. It is just an incredibly well-run franchise. And and let's be honest about it. They're a little bit like the Yankees of whatever Mm. era you're thinking with George Steinbrenner. They're spending a lot more money than everybody else. I mean, you look at what's going on with the Phoenix Suns right now, and they're talking about trading DeAndre Aiden, and they're not sure how much money to invest in Chris Paul. This was the number one seed in the playoffs. Why not run it back? And the reason is... Well, there's some financial concerns. They don't want to go too far over the luxury tax. The the Warriors just don't have that. They went from bad ownership and bad management to the absolute best. Now, obviously, the old ownership group and, and management drafted Steph Curry, but essentially everything since then, the trade of Monte Ellis to get Andrew Bogut and drafting Draymond and Clay and everything going forward, the trade for Iguodala has been the new group. And they have been, I mean, I think they are the best run franchise in professional sports. I'm not even sure who else would would be on that list right now. I mean, maybe the before Tom Brady left for Tampa Bay, you could say the Patriots, but they're always clouded with all these questions, believe them or not, the gray area stuff. The, the Warriors have just been a pleasure to to watch and kind of cheer for and enjoy for 
I mean, almost a decade now. Yeah, good stuff. And speaking of uh, the New England Patriots, and he's not he's not a New England Patriot anymore, but uh, Rob Gronkowski, as we record this, uh, retiring supposedly today. I think he just doesn't want to do training camp. I think I think he'll mysteriously unretire like somewhere sometime around September first. I think it's going to be closer to November first. <laughs> I mean, you know, what, what, not only does Rob Gronkowski not want to do training camp, yeah, he doesn't want the first couple he, weeks of the season. Yeah, what, <laughs> what does he need? The, I mean, remember when Roger Clemens used to start pitching around July first or so? I think Kurt Schilling might have done that once or twice at the end. The season's yeah. long, particularly football. It can it can hurt out there. Like you, you'd be ready to go for the stretch run. Yeah, I don't think anybody would blame him either. Uh, why would you? I mean, now, now I, I, it's fine that he puts out a retirement announcement. If he retires, he's obviously a first ballot Hall of Famer. All that fantastic. I would have just put out a note that said, I'm not participating in training camp for the first month of the season this year. And, you know, we'll see about things, uh, you know, around uh, uh, Columbus Day. Well, I think what was funny was the, the statement that uh, Drew Rosenhaus' agent said, which was like, well, maybe it's not fully retirement. You know, Tom Brady <laughs> might call, and it's like, okay, this is this is a ploy to miss the first eight weeks of the season. We yeah, get it. yeah, and we get which, it. which is fine. Yeah, I mean, at this fun. point, he's he earned can, that right. Yeah. He can do whatever he wants, and somebody will happily take him. I mean, that's the other thing. He can figure out at that point who really needs a tight end and where he can yeah. ship in. And now I know he said he'd only play with Brady, so so maybe that's Tampa Bay. But he can sit back and reflect. And if the Bucks aren't having a great year, you know what? He can sit out this whole year and come back next year if he wants to i mean it, it, it's pretty pretty easy peasy before we wrap up the warriors and yes, celtics yes. though obviously the celtics have a, a a very nice young core i think they have one of the best staffs in the league i i do think uh they got beaten by a deeper team and a better team a more battle tested team but as for their future what do you see? Do they need to make a trade? Is there someone they can draft? How close are they? Because ne when next year starts, I, I mean, they're going to be one of the Eastern Conference favorites, but Milwaukee still has one of the best players on the planet, and theoretically, the, the Nets are going to be a lot better. It wasn't like the Celtics were overwhelming favorites to get to the NBA Finals this year. Can you just run it back and be fine, or are there other things that you think need to take place? Well, I mean, I think that's a great question. I, mean, I think I don't know if this is a run-it-back type team. I think the area that they need help in is is um, bench and that number. Who's that number three guy after Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum? Now, and a lot of times it was smart you know you know sometimes it was in this series it was Al Horford he was their third best player no I know but but during the getting to that point yep it, it was Marcus Smart sometimes it was Robert Williams you know um Horford I, I mean I love Horford but you know I think he's got an expiring deal so he he might be somebody that uh you know gets moved they, they have some flexibility you know I mean do they need more of a rim protector? You know, maybe. Well, um, I think they I think that's what Williams is. is that's what he is no doubt to, about to it. To me it's shooting I just think they need another guy. Like, it, it, as good as Horford was, and, and he was terrific, I, I think you need a knockdown shooter. They need a 3 and D guy. Yeah. Smart's the D guy. He's not the reliable 3, three. guy. Yeah. I, I think White is probably the same thing. Excellent defensively, not great on 3. Pritchard can really shoot it. He's certainly a liability on defense. I, I think they need, you know, for for lack of a better word, they, they, they need, you know, 
that kind of prototypical NBA 6'6 athletic guy who can consistently knock down shots and guard your other teams, if not their best player, their, their second best player. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think, you know, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think they do have the opportunity, though, to be at the top and come back. But yeah, I, n- No question. I mean, it's I, I for me, this was a fun team. I didn't really expect them to get to the finals. So when they got to the finals, you know, speaking as a fan, um, you know, it was fun going through this with John because, um, you know, he's become kind of a big Celtics fan, my son. So we – I mean, I probably looked at this the finals more from a fan perspective than analytically. So what would you say you'd be happy with in the next three years? If they make one more finals but don't win a championship in the next three years, or, like, like what would constitute, okay, that, that was good, I'm satisfied by that, or what would be like, wow, I was really expecting more? Because so often you get a young nucleus, a team that does really well, they make it to the finals, and then, you know, it's not that they peter out, but... Milwaukee's just as good as Boston. The Nets are just as good as Boston. Other teams are making moves, too. Like, in three years or four years or five years, what do you need to see to have made this all worthwhile? I mean, I think they have to maybe go to another two finals and win at least one. Yeah, I think that's a really big ask. And and I'm not suggesting they aren't just as likely as anyone else to do it. I think there are a lot of good teams, though. I mean, Phoenix was the best team during the regular season Yeah, but you know year. what? The one thing the Celtics have to face that a lot of other te- NBA teams don't, and that is um, – and, and it was funny what Draymond did, right? The Celtics put out these shirts, and they had the eight, the, the block for the 18th banner. I don't know if you saw that T-shirt. Yep. Um, but th- th- that's the expectation with the Celtics. The expectation – now, granted, they haven't done it in a long time. I mean, they did it, you know, what, 10 years ago. But, you know, there were some lean years after Larry Bird retired and um, and, and that whole crew. But the expectation doesn't leave the Celtics. I mean, the expectation is that they're competing for cha- – and winning – you're not just competing. You're supposed to win championships in Boston with the Celtics. That's just the, the, the Celtics pedigree. Does it amaze you that Steph Curry – has now accomplished more than Larry Bird. I, I just can't believe that. To, to, in my youth, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson were untouchable. And then Michael Jordan came around, and he was untouchable. The idea that this Warrior team has more titles than those Celtics teams, and, and when you add up all the MVPs and All-Star Game stuff and the scoring numbers and the three-point shooting, I, and Steph Curry's legacy is going to be greater than Larry Bird. That's astounding to me. Yeah, and you know somebody raised this question um, last week. I think it was the the guys on the Queen City News, Will Kunkel. But you know, um, there was a discussion between their morning show and the, and the sports guys because um, Will Kunkel's would maintain that Steph Curry, no matter the era, is a great player, but he wouldn't be as great had he played in the '80s. And uh, the guys in the morning were like, "No, that's crazy. Like Steph Curry, Steph Curry, he's transcendent." Um, I t- kind of tend to agree more with Will Kunkel. I mean, I still think Steph Curry is would have been a great, you know, a top, you know, twenty MB of all time if he played in the '80s. But that was a different game, man. I mean, if you put Larry Bird in today's game, uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's well, the, uh, the thing. I, I don't know if they addressed this or not. I, I didn't see that, but the three-point line has moved out, so the three-point shot was easier then. Right, but but the I think because of the hand checking. I mean. Yeah, they definitely defended differently, but that's why Steph Curry has changed basketball. You have to guard him at 
30 feet. No one else in the history of the league has ever had to be defended that far out. So if he was playing in the 80s with all the stuff you're mentioning, the hand-checking and the physicality, your defense would still be stretched unbelievably thin because you have to defend so far but, out. Right, No, and I, I know what you're saying, but you're, you're making one assumption that I don't know that's a fair assumption is the, the style. I don't know if teams would have adapted to his style as quickly as they did. Well, yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's the game. It was a different type of game. The no reliance question. on the three wasn't as big. Even if you had a great three-point shooter, you know, this what he's done has been revolutionary. I totally, one hundred percent agree with you. And maybe that would have happened, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the, those are the questions that you can't answer. That's why comparing players by generation is nearly impossible. But and I think the other thing that makes it more interesting too, right? Is I mean, the, you could make the argument that. Um, you know, would with less teams, would Steph Curry had made it to the NBA in the eighties? Well, that's a good question too. I, I don't mean, know. I mean, probably. I mean, I think so because I, I think you know, talent finds talent. But well, I mean, he's one of the fifteen or twenty best players, ten best players in the history of the yeah. league. But what you're saying isn't wrong. That a small school guy could have gotten looked over, could never have had the opportunity. And, and th that stuff did happen. Many, many more players slipped through the cracks then than they do now. Scouting departments are larger. Every game is on TV. Yada, yada, yada. That actually transitions nicely. And this is the Bearded Carcast with Mike Pacheco. I'm Dave Friedman. Drop us an email, beardedcarcast at outlook.com. Hit us up on social media. Where are you listening? Thoughts on some of our topics, etc. Um, the NBA draft is Thursday. I remember when the NBA draft seemed to me to be six months after the season ended because the Warriors were always eliminated before the playoffs <laughs> yeah. started. And the draft was like, it always amazes me after the finals. The finals end and the draft is here. And, you know, in recent years, we've seen a guy from Murray State and a guy from Davidson in the top of the draft or, or in the lottery. And we're certainly now seeing guys go straight from the G League to the NBA. I don't believe the Celtics have a first-round draft pick. The Warriors pick, as they have frequently uh, towards the bottom. Our hometown Charlotte Hornets, though, are, are picking number 13. And, you know, you look at the top of the draft, and, and to me... We can talk about all of these different guys and who should be number one and who you think is going to be good and who you don't think is going to be good. Now, I'm happy to have any and all of those conversations, but the only guy I really care about is Chet Holmgren yeah. because he is he's fascinating. I mean, he is he's 7'1", he's and he weighs less than 200 pounds. Right. Right. I mean, he played for Gonzaga, who was ranked number one in the country for large parts of last season. And there were times when he wasn't the best player on his team. And, and it's such a funny contrast because Drew Timmy, who at times was the best player on Gonzaga, is your classic old school 25, 30 year ago, back to the basket, kind of slow, but able to to score at will player and because of nil and because the way the nba has changed he's going back to gonzaga for his senior year because he might not be an nba player at all mm -hmm. whereas chet holmgren who has so much potential but again he, he is rail thin but he's got guard-like skills that there are more 
ofs, uts, and buts with with Chet Holmgren. Like, I have no idea what to expect. I, if you told me he was going to be the best player in the NBA in five years, I'd say, okay, well, I certainly saw that skill set. If you told me he was going to be out of the league because he either wasn't effective or simply just his body wouldn't hold up, I would understand that too. And he does so many different things. I mean, you know, you said, you know, the guard-like uh, tendencies, he can spot up and, you know, he can be a trail three too. I mean, it's like, it's absurd. He, I mean, he's, he, here's, a, I guess the big question though for him, right, is is playing center in the NBA. Because um, what, he's like 195? I mean, that's... Something like that. I mean, is he more of a stretch four? Well, I think what he is, is I think he's the modern day player who plays as much on the perimeter, yeah. right? He's positionless. And, and, you know, there are a lot of teams in the league now. For a long, long time, everyone had, you know, three wings, two guards and a small forward, and then two bigs. And then, you know, 10 years ago or so, we saw teams go to four out and one in, and now we see five out. And, and yeah. you know, Chet Holmgren certainly can, can rebound and, and score inside, but he can play outside just as well as he does inside. And if he were to be drafted by, you know, some of these really, really analytics forward teams like Houston, I mean, he would play kind of a hybrid guard center position. Yeah. yeah. Kind of almost like, I mean, not not identical, but maybe similar to what Winthrop um, used Chandler Vaudrin last year. I mean, not necessarily as a point guard, but, you know, initiating some of the offense. And on defense, he's going to be there kind of as a rim protector, you know, you know, try to get block shots, yeah, rebound. Yeah, I mean, the the hybrid or the positionless or the amoeba that that has turned into a very very valuable yeah. position and it's just it's not the way the game used to be played it's a little bit what you talked about about the three point line changing the game but uh, like I don't most players I kind of have a read and a feel on I would be surprised if Paulo Bonchero is not a very yeah. good NBA player yeah. is he a Hall of Fame player I I, I don't have any idea right, right. but like I think he's going to be an NBA starter and maybe an all-star type guy for for a while. I mean, he 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 has the look and the feel to me, and and, and I'm pretty confident in that. Chet Holmgren, it's all upside. He he could be incredible, but he looks like Sean Bradley. <laughs> maybe Manu Bowl. Yeah, I mean, but no. th- that's not the position he plays. No, no, no. And that's not his no. skill set. No, no, no. But, that, but that's how he physically yeah, he looks. looks yeah. You know who he looks a little bit like? He looks a little bit like Gordon Haywood did mm. coming out of Butler. And, and I'm not sure. How would you assess Gordon Haywood's career? It, it, it certainly hasn't been bad. I think he's been an all-star once or twice. He's been injury prone. He's been on some pretty good teams. He's been on some not as good teams. But but I wouldn't say he's had this amazing career. He's been a solid NBA contributor. No, and I, and I think the injuries is what puts the, the uh, kind of the taint or question mark on him. Right, because he hasn't been. I mean, when was the last time he had a full healthy season? I mean, yeah. I mean, when you when you sign him, you know he's not going to have yeah, I mean, a he, full, you know, healthy I mean, he season. Didn't make it through with the Celtics, the Hornets. You know, he hasn't made it f- for the Hornets either. I, I mean, when he's healthy, he's he's good, but um, he's just a guy that uh, you know. This that's the shame side of uh, the shame of sports sometimes too. Is and I don't mean shame in a. I mean shame. It stinks. Not I'm not shaming him, but it's just um, when when guys can't stay healthy anymore. Yep. You know, but, like, uh, you know, like it, Christian McCaffrey. I mean, the hope is he has a healthy year and, and gets back to being 
a fully productive player, but you know, in his It'd short be hard to bet on that. But in his short span, you could say, man, when he's been there, he's been great. You know, in the first couple of years, he never got hurt. Yep. But the last two seasons, you know, um, you know, you look at Luke Keekley. Luke Keekley was, you know, I think he's a Hall of Famer, terrific. But the last, you know, last year, last two years of his career, you know, the, when the concussions started piling up, you know, that's you, know, you want to see those guys on the field. No, no question about it. But basketball and football, I mean, there are Two some different sports. parallels, yeah. and there there are some other things. You know, you mentioned the Hornets, and I want to get to them. I want to talk about them for a minute. But before we leave the NBA draft, and if you want to add in who you think the Hornets could pick that would really make a, a big difference for them, that that's fine. Is there anybody else in the draft that you are either very pro or very con, someone that you really think – could make a difference and be a nice player or, or, or guys that you think are going to be overdrafted or, or do you not really care? Um, I, I don't really care. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair, I, well, you know, I, I'm not a big NFL draft guy because I don't pretend to know all the players. Well, no, and, and I would say this about the NBA draft. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, first of all, you don't, you don't really know what's going on until the end of the, dra- the first round because they don't, I mean, they say, oh, this is happening, but it's not really official until the end of the round. Um, and I think with this, just with this, you know, particularly with this year, just, I don't know, I just haven't been in, as into the draft as... Yeah, because you've been too busy watching yeah. games, so, yeah. so you don't need to be into it. I just like, as opposed to the NFL draft where... It's a linebacker from Fresno State followed by an offensive tackle from Iowa followed by a wide receiver from Auburn. And I don't know how the lay person can possibly compare those guys, never mind even know all of those guys. In the NBA, I've basically seen all of these guys play, and some of them a lot more Mm -hmm. than others. Like the kid from from Arizona. I mean, he is as athletic a player as we've seen going to the NBA, you know, in a long time, and I shouldn't say that because every year there are crazy athletic guys that go into the NBA, but but he is unbelievably athletic. Is he going to be a great NBA player? I don't know. I thought he was kind of streaky at Arizona, but there are a couple of guys I'm really interested in. The first one is Mark Williams, the center from Duke. Oh yeah, I yep. love him as a rim defender, and I have a hard time imagining he is not going to be a contributing NBA player. Again, I don't know if he's going to be a starter. I certainly don't know if he's going to be an all-star, but I think a guy that makes a difference defensively at the rim and then can screen and rim run and offensive rebound and do those things. A middle of the first round guy that I think is going to contribute. He's a guy I I, I really like. The the point guard who's more of a hybrid than a true point, Ty Ty Washington from Kentucky. I have a hard time imagining he's not going to stick in the NBA as, you know, a guy that can play that 1-1-2, one, one, initiate the off, and, and, and have a nice career. Again, I don't know if he's going to be a star or an all-star, but so many of these guys end up not contributing at all. I, I think he's a guy that, that will contribute. And, and as a second-rounder, Ron Harper's kid mm. has that kind of gene, and maybe he's not athletic enough, but God, for all the years at Rutgers, I think he was there for four years, seems like he always wanted the ball in his hands, and he's a big, stocky mm. guard. He, he's got good NBA size. 
I think is kind of like a, a, a secondary guy, a second-round guy. I'm a little interested in him. You know what guy that you and I saw? Iverson Molinar, the point guard at Mississippi State. Oh, yeah. He's likely to be a second-round pick. And a guy we saw a couple of years ago, Orlando Robinson at Fresno State, will probably be a second-round pick. So for some Winthrop fans, that there are a few guys we've seen in recent years that, that are likely to be in the NBA draft, and I'm looking forward to that. As for the Hornets... Well, the Williams, Mark Williams, um, he would be a guy that I think the Hornets would be interested in. I mean, that's exactly the, one of the positions they need is kind of a rim, middle of the, middle of the defense rim protector. Yeah, I mean, the question with the Hornets is... Do they, well, do they trade up or do they... You know, well, what do you do with Miles Bridges? You, you right. can't really make any decision until you determine right. are you re-signing or not re-signing Miles Bridges. Well, they only and have like, a couple days to decide that. Well, well no, I mean, they, they know now. I mean, they, they know it's going to take either a max contract right. or really, really close to it. No, but they have to be committed to that, you know, when it comes to the draft. If they, I mean, don't you think that decision has to be already made? Yeah, I mean, more or less. Yeah. I mean, they, they essentially know what he's going to cost, and they have to have made a decision about whether he's worth it or not. This, to me, though, is the great problem with the NBA. I've said this for years. Miles Bridges is a really nice player. He averaged 20 points a game, I think six, seven rebounds a game, like four assists a game. He shot the ball good inside the arc, not so good outside the arc this past season. It's hard to believe, though, that a max guy has to simply be one dollar figure right. because Miles Bridges should get whatever it is, twenty-five or thirty million dollars a year. But the idea that he would be paid the same as LeBron or Steph Curry or Kevin Durant or, or one of those guys, the Greek freak or, or the big guy on Denver—I mean, it—that's crazy. But that's where the league is. I, I've said this for a long time. We can do an entire podcast on this. I, I think the NBA structure the salary cap is fine i don't think there should be a cap on each individual player so if you want to give lebron two-thirds of your salary cap and pay him 85 million dollars a year that's fine but that means all of the guys that you fill in around right. him have to be kind of minimal players to give miles bridges huge money yeah i mean then you have Miles Bridges for huge money, and you have probably a second or a third or a fourth best player on a really good team locked into an enormous contract. I feel like it's a lose-lose for the Hornets because if you let them go, you're letting your second best player walk for nothing, or maybe you can do a sign-and-trade, but you never get requisite value yeah. for that. And if you re-sign him you're probably paying him more than he should be paid. I just That's the issue with being in the middle of the NBA. You yeah. have the right to re-sign your own player to however much money you want, which is great, but when your player isn't the A-level guy, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, that's one of the hardest. That's why it's good to be a middle guy on the right team. <laughs> well, a lot of money. It's good to be an NBA player, sure period. Yeah. I would have thought that being a NBA head coach was a really good thing. But for Kenny Atkinson, who's already well, once been an NBA head coach, uh, apparently being Steve Kerr's top assistant is even better. Well, but think about it, right? Um, especially with, um, you know, Mike Brown left, so, you know, maybe he becomes kind of more, you know, 
more, not more important, but maybe closer to the top. So if something happens with Steve Kerr, maybe it's an easier transition. You just won a championship, and this is no disrespect to the Hornets, but you know, would you rather be on a team that has a chance to win, be a part of a team that can win an NBA championship next year, or go to a team that you have to build and it's going to take time? I mean, I don't think. I think it is a total indictment of the Hornets, and. Again, I didn't make the choice for Kenny Atkinson, who has an incredibly strong reputation and I think people think has done pretty good work in the places he's been. But if you're um, Sam Darnold and you can go hold a clipboard and make a lot of money or you can go make that money as a starting quarterback, you almost always go to the starting role. The idea that Kenny Atkinson would remain as the number two guy or the number three guy, even with a, a generationally uh, great team, it's you just don't see many people make that decision. But I think the difference is between the NFL and the NBA, though, right? Because the NBA, to me, is a little bit like the SEC. I mean, there's really only five or six teams every year that can win it. And usually in the NBA recently, it's been kind of the same teams. In the in the NFL, you can have a team that finishes last, and the next year they could be competing for a Super Bowl, or at least they could be in the playoffs. I mean, I guess you know that that's an interesting way of looking at it. Because when I look at the NBA going into next year, I feel like there are a lot of teams that can win it. I don't think the Warriors are overwhelmingly better than a whole bunch of teams. I mean, the East this year weren't there four or five teams that were all sort of roughly the same. Memphis was terrific down the stretch in the West. Denver gets their two two of their three best players back from injury. I don't know what's going to happen with the coaching situation in Utah. Both the L.A. teams should be much improved. Uh, like, I hear what you're saying, but Toronto won an NBA championship recently. Milwaukee won an NBA championship recently. M- I, but but a I lot of times but a lot of times it's been the Lakers you know the Celtics have been in there the Spurs there's not I mean you're right there I mean of of 30 teams I'd say I mean I haven't done the math on this but how many unique winners have been there in the last yeah no I mean it it has been I mean the Spurs won more than their fair share and before that it was you know or after that it was LeBron with a couple different teams with Miami and with Cleveland and with the Lakers it's been the Warriors I I mean you're right but Milwaukee did win one and and um, Toronto won one I guess it's a combination. It's a combination of being with an organization that's winning, thinking that, you know, down the line, maybe there's an opportunity to replace Steve Kerr. Also, um, I am sure, because this is what the Warriors have consistently done for the last 10 years, I'm sure he's being compensated, if not like a head coach, among maybe even the highest paid assistant coach. But it has something to do with the Hornets, too. Well, and I, well, or maybe it's not so much the Hornets, but you know, may, well, indirectly the Hornets, meaning maybe working towards a better situation. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we'll, we'll see with the Hornets. There, there was a time. I guess it was mostly the the Mike Dunlap and, and maybe the the Paul Silas the second era that that you wondered what the Hornets were doing. The, the recent coaches. I thought Steve Clifford was a pretty good coach. I thought James Borrego was a pretty good coach. And, and I don't think the Hornets roster is as desolate. I don't think their situation is 
what it was a few years ago. Um, I'm interested to see though they've got they've got big decisions. They've got big decisions in the draft. They got big decisions in free agency. I, I do think Mitch Kupchak knows what he's doing. I, I I think bringing a a professional and an adult into the room was and has been a really really good move. I uh, I'm interested to see though how, how this plays going forward because if you make one or two wrong decisions, coaching, free agency and draft, boy, it'll very quickly feel like the same old Hornets. Well, and they were methodical this time, too. I mean, it, you know, that was a methodical search. I mean, they didn't they didn't just kind of haphazardly come across Kenny Atkinson. I mean, there was a, you know, a deep process. I think he was the um, – it was between um, him and Mike D'Antoni, and I think he was the only one to talk to Michael Jordan. Yep, yep. That's, and that's so, my understanding uh, as well. And, I th- you know, it seems like they did their due diligence, and then, you know, at the um, – you know, kind of at the last second, he had the, the change of heart, and you know, only he knows what the the true answer is. But uh, you know, it stinks for the Hornets because I I think this is a team I think, and you you've been here long enough too, Dave. Like this team will explode if the Hornets have a good team. I mean, if they if they had a team that could be a top four seed, uh, th- th- this place would go crazy. I mean, be, Hornets would be talked about a lot. You know, the the tennis would be you know outstanding. Um. But I, I don't know how many more setbacks the fandom can take, though. You know what I mean? It but just, but that's exactly it. They lost their best player, what was that, three years ago? And they drafted LaMelo Ball. Miles Bridges has developed into a mm-hmm. nice player. When he's healthy, Gordon Hayward is obviously a great contributor. And now you're potentially staring, losing your second best player for nothing or yeah. for, for minimal gain. Again, you're changing coaches again. Like, I kind of think they have to sign Bridges, and it's going to be an overpay. But, like, you didn't have a bad team this year. You sort of fell apart at the end of the season, but you have to build and move forward. You can't always be rebuilding and starting over. No, and and that was the whole point of, um, you know, breaking up that, that team with Gerald Williams and Steven Jackson you know the the you know they they wanted you know after that I think Michael Jordan said you know they want to be in the top half of the Eastern Conference, not always fighting for you know sixth, seventh, or eighth. And unfortunately, that's been the result. I mean, they've been they they have been fighting for that that bottom half of the the playoffs. I mean, the Kemba Walker thing though to me was was the big one, and, and I get what happened. It it was time to move on, yeah. but he was the guy. And when you lose that guy and you lose the identity, you lose the fan's favorite player, that stings. And then quickly, you brought in a new GM, and he seemed to know what he was doing. He drafted ball, and I mean, in the middle of this last season, they looked like they were going to the playoffs. They looked like they were on the rise. And, And I'd be lying to say I paid enough attention to tell you exactly what happened down the stretch. But I just feel like if you're a fan of a franchise and finally you, you, you get to the point that, yeah, you know, we really lost a guy that I loved who was our best player, one of the best in franchise history, but we drafted ball, we've got bridges, we're building, and then you, you don't make the play-in tournament or you lose in the first game of the play-in tournament and you fire the coach and now bridges is a free agent and like, 
how many times can you restart? Now, now playing devil's advocate, if you say you re-sign Bridges and now the core that you need to win with is on the roster, and if you don't think that core is good enough, then you're stuck in the middle, and that that's no good either. That's why I'm telling you, I, I, I just think they're in a really tough spot. This is the Bearded Carcast. Dave Friedman, Mike Pacheco. Before we go, I know you wanted to um, talk a little bit about the the uh, the live tour. We just had the uh, the U.S. Open at the Country Club in Brookline, which um, surprisingly I've never played. Um, but it is uh, it's a beautiful course right there. Uh, used to be a racetrack. Used to be a racetrack. That's right. Um, what an interesting. Uh, and I hadn't. I really had didn't know this. Some of the trivia there, um, but I didn't realize that they. Was it the fourteenth hole? You don't play the fourteenth hole when you play the country club. Only when there's a championship or a um, you know like a big event. Uh, that's not part of the you know they they change some of the holes on the course. Um, and that that par five fourteen is a bear. I mean, you have a like a a second fairway you have to get to before you get to the green. That's over a rocky ledge. It's got great character. Um, oh, ter- ter- terrific character, and uh, you know so many great stories. I don't know if you've heard this. But uh, Matt Fitzpatrick, the one, uh, he actually won there as an amateur. Is that right? Yes. I didn't hear them mention that no. one time. And, and this, is, this is an amazing story. So when he was an amateur, he became friendly with the Fulton family, uh, Will Fulton, who's like on the board of directors at the country club. And he stayed there. And not only that, he stayed there again. No kidding. Yes. Wow. And he made everybody like switch rooms and like he had to stay in the same room that he stayed in. Uh, wow. When yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I had never heard that. It is a great story. It, it is was just overtold. <laughs> it was just overtold. Oh my god! I mean, god. it was a really good tournament. Will Zalatoris coming down the stretch, and you have the Masters champion right there as well, Scotty Scheffler. I didn't. Rory think... hung around. Like Rory had, a, you know. Right. Now, I didn't think the guy, I mean, I heard some people afterwards talking about what an amazing Sunday Fitzpatrick had. I thought Fitzpatrick was good, a little bit better than those other guys. Yeah, but uh, how many grains of regulation he had? Well, 17 grains of regulation was incredible. That's pretty. And that shot out of the bunker? Yeah, right. I mean, you have to have one of those to win a major tournament. I, though, am wondering, and, you know, we, we've now talked about this a little bit over the last month or so, is the PGA Tour, we'll just, we'll just, I'll just phrase it the exact same way we did three weeks ago before the NBA Finals. That was before the Live Tour played their, their first tournament. And now we're seeing more defections. Brooks Kepka is going, and we've seen Bryson DeChambeau is going. Is the PGA Tour in trouble? I think now they are the question is is it long-term trouble is it is it something that is this more like the um instead of like the xfl and all the different usfls and all different football leagues we've seen and just crashing um is this more like the uh the nfl and the afl you know is uh right it, it, and i think that is the case dave i think it's more like that i think this may be something where they come back together and i think what's interesting is this is the first competitive league um, of any of the big major sports that, uh, and I would include golf in this, right? Um, but th- that has deep pockets, and th- they're they're right. going to hang around. So now here's the thing, you know, it depends on what they're. What are the goals of the Live Tour, right? Um, if it's you know eyeballs in the U.S., you know that's to be determined because you know the uh, the first tournament I don't think was streamed. It was streamed, but it wasn't on over-the-air television, right? Right. Um, and I don't, 
Here, the only thing I could think of is, is this something that only golf fans care about? Because as a casual golf fan, like I love watching the U.S. Open and, and I play golf, but you know, I'm you know, I don't even know where the tour is this week. I mean, I'm I'm not watching that, but I'm not watching the Live Tour either. So if their if their goal is to just have a bunch of great players and pay them a bunch of money and let them play and not not many people watch, that's fine. I I don't know how it's going to gain traction, even with all these great players. One of the great defenses of the PGA Tour I heard though was, you know, it's it's still the difference in how they play. You know, like the shot they have a shotgun start on the Live Tour, right? And there's a team element, but you know, this is you know, tee to green. You know, you start on the first hole. Everyone you know starts off. I don't think the one is better than the other. What what they do on the PGA Tour is slow and plodding and sometimes dramatic, and it, it's a high level of golf. The shotgun start, potentially, I don't know if this is going to be actuality, but potentially that leads to red zone for golf, where there are six guys all in the mix on the 16th yeah. hole, and it's Picture in picture, I want to see this, I want to see this, I want to see this. It's quicker and it's more dramatic. I don't know if that's how it's going to work out, but that's the concept. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, I, I have, you know, until we watch, you know, one of their tournaments or a couple tournaments and get a feel for it, I, you know, I don't know if people are going to tune into it or not. I mean, are people so used to... I don't know that it matters, though. I mean, all this comes down to is where are the best players playing. Because if the best players are not on the PGA Tour, no one's watching the PGA Tour. It's irrelevant. So if all the best players are playing in the Live Tour, or many of the best players are playing in the Live Tour, you've taken some of the oomph out of the PGA. And I'm with you. I'm not a watch every week PGA Tour guy. But there are Many, many people that are. No one would suggest the PGA Tour is not incredibly lucrative for the fans, for the TV networks, for the players, for the executives. I mean, it's not the NFL. It's not the NBA. It's probably not baseball or hockey or soccer. But there's plenty of money to be made with a sitcom on the the WB too. You don't have to be Chuck Lorre on CBS. I mean, this is a very viable business that is now being severely challenged by this league that's basically playing by different rules. Right. But the question I would have is um the the one question I'm going to have is and I know they're playing in Portland I think this week or next week. But if they're playing all these tournaments overseas, who's going to want? I'm not getting up at, you know. It's well, not you the, didn't it, have to get up at a ridiculous hour to watch their last tournament. It was on in the morning in the early afternoon Eastern time. And I didn't watch it. Right, but I did. And if it gained, I mean, the bottom line is you want to watch the best players. If the best American players, when Michael Phelps was swimming in the Olympics and it was at a funny hour, a lot of people woke up to watch Michael Phelps play or to swim at a funny hour. I mean, the World Cup gets massive television ratings at strange times. Does yeah, it but get this better isn't, this isn't the World Cup, though. This isn't the, the this, golf isn't, day in and day in golf is not nearly as popular as as no, but, but but European soccer is pretty popular in America, and people wake up at strange hours to watch it. Yeah. 
I mean, no one is suggesting this is the NFL. It's not the NFL. It's not the NBA either. But after- I just think they're they're, they're drawing. I, I I don't think if the end game is to to merge and create something else, it's definitely not that. Well, I think so, for some people it is because that well, they I think they like the idea of the PGA Tour, but they don't like the constrict. They want the the bigger payouts. I mean, the Live Tour is trying to put the PGA Tour out of business. I don't know if they're going to do that or not, but that's the goal. The goal is for all major golf in the world to run through the Saudis. And the way that they are trying to do that is by paying the best players to play in their tournaments, making the PGA Tour an unattractive minor league product that nobody watches or pays for. And I think what it all comes down to is, can the players on the Live Tour play in the major championships? And I think we're going to find out the answer to that relatively soon, because the way you get into the major championships is by getting world points. And right now you can't get points on the Live Tour, but they have applied for uh, a way to get points. If those players can compete in the Masters, if those players can compete in the U.S. Open, and, and I think even without the points, they could probably compete in the U.S. Open, but they would have to go through qualifying to do so. But if they can get automatic entry into the major tournaments, th- then I think it, it's very viable. I mean, just today, Brooks Kepka, who everyone knows, he's won four majors, he's a great player, has said he's going, but so did Abraham Ansor, who's the 20th ranked player in the world. Yeah. And, and, and number 20 in the world is nothing to laugh about. I, I mean, we're, we're talking about in the matter of a month here, we've gone from this tour has nobody to this tour has, I don't know, let's call it 15% or 20% of the top 100 players. And they're going to keep shelling out money. And if players find out that this doesn't adversely affect me, that I can still play in the major tournaments, they're going to take the money. Yeah, no doubt. It's it's fascinating to think of. I think that in one way or another, this is going to alter the landscape of golf. Because if, if they are allowed to play in the majors, then the PGA Championship is going to become a non-major because the PGA is not going to allow players from not the PGA Tour. So we're going to go from four majors to three majors. Or if the Live Tour players cannot get points, they're going to have to make some sort of decision about are, are they going to play European Tour events where they're now permitted to play and where they can gain points, but how are they going to do that and play the 14 Live Tour events that they have to play? I just think the whole thing, again, you and I talked about it a few weeks ago. From a sports business perspective, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. What if somebody invented a league And all of a sudden, you know, a third or 20% of the best, you name it, NBA players or football players or baseball players started competing in this other league. At some point, the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball would start to get nervous. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And that's that's what's going to be interesting uh, for the PGA Tour. And the only thing really that's saving, uh, or not saving is not the right word, but uh, but imagine if the if the major I mean they couldn't live tour couldn't do this if the majors were tied into the PGA tour exclusively. 
No question. It would be a non-starter unless they simply were chasing the money and said, I don't care anymore. And and the guys that are, you know, 44, 45 years old who are kind of at the end and and they just want a big paycheck, they've done what they're going to do. That's one thing. But a guy like Brooks Kepka, I mean, he's got four majors. There aren't that many players that have won five, six, seven, eight majors. His legacy of, you know, he's not going to be Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods, but but could he be one of those, you know, five or ten guys all time to win those sort of majors if he's not able now to play? He has one of those very kind of complicated careers that we have to kind of add up. Well, and it's hard to say no to 100 million guaranteed. (laughs) Well, no one's been knocking down my door with that. No, no, mine either. But we're occasionally, willing, occasionally we get an email about. It. I, I was I, I was joking with somebody. I said, you know, I'm surprised. That, when are they going to start throwing the the big money around Nance? Like, when is Nance going to get like you know 100 million dollars to be the exclusive voice of the Live Tour? It's not. I mean, <laughs> I don't think something like that is off the table. Do you? Maybe not that money, but some some crazy money. I, I mean, they, they probably can't hire him because, well, I mean, Joe Buck gave up the World Series willingly yeah. to, to go to ESPN and do Monday Night Football. I would think that he would, A, need to make sure he could still do the Masters, right. and, and B, probably still enjoys doing the NCAA tournament yeah. and, the, and, and the NFL and all of those sort of things, but... Uh, nothing would shock me. Although, although, well, and this is kind of getting too nitty gritty. The CBS would be the issue there, I think. Yeah, I don't think, right. I I don't think he could probably do both because CBS is in bed with the PGA Tour. And, and, you know, I I don't think they would allow him to do live tour events and the the CBS duties. But, you you know, who (laughs) Who thought Tom Brady was going to get whatever money he got Jeez. from Fox I to? Know. to <laughs> I know. But yeah, we'll take fifteen million for the Bearded Carcast to be the exclusive podcast of the Live Tour. Let's put that out there. Yeah, we're we're available. <laughs> fifteen million each, by the way. <laughs> you know what? You know what? I'll cut him a, a two for one deal. All right, thirty million for the <laughs> both of us. <laughs> All right, that's it. I think that's hey, we've we've talked too long. Okay. Yeah, this is the Bearded Carcast. Email us, beardedcarcast at outlook.com. Dave might check it. I don't. I haven't checked it in a while, so we'll see. But at Bearded Carcast is how you can follow along on Twitter. 